Hey everybody, Merry Christmas season, and welcome once again to The Goods, a film podcast. How are you doing, Dan? Hey Brian, I'm doing pretty good, I'm happy to be back. I am a little bit tired, I got my booster shot yesterday, and I woke up feeling like I had been making merry the night before, even though I hadn't been. So, uh, nonetheless, I'm excited to be here talking with you about what I hope will become an annual tradition. That's right, because it is the second annual slate of adaptations we'll be considering of Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol, the 1843 novella, which, as we found, and I'm sure you are aware, has just been endlessly adapted. Everybody wants to make A Christmas Carol. And I'll say I got my booster a couple weeks ago, and, and yeah, just like every dose that I've had of it, the night of I feel gross, and then the whole next day like my arm will be really stiff and then the next day i'll have chills has been the way that it's played out for me yeah i just i felt pretty good last night i started to feel kind of tired early and then this morning it was as if i had been visited by three ghosts the night before for how tired and sore i felt although technically not three in one night as i learned when i paid close attention to the source text here Yes, so the films that we specifically considered for discussion, and we'll probably be name-dropping a few other versions. You'll remember, perhaps, last year we watched and reviewed four musical versions of A Christmas Carol. This year, the broad goal was non-musical, although at least one entry kind of toes the line. It has some songs. But we ended up watching Scrooge, from 1951, not to be confused with Scrooge 1970, we watched Rich Little's Christmas Carol, starring Impressionist Rich Little from 1978. We watched the TV movie version of A Christmas Carol from 1984, starring George C. Scott as Scrooge. And then we watched the animated 2009 film, sometimes called Disney's A Christmas Carol, directed by Robert Zemeckis and starring Jim Carrey via the magic of motion capture. Because we did a recap of the story last year, I'm just going to kind of point you to that episode. Broadly speaking, you know the story. We'll, we'll still spitball it here a little bit, but uh, the name of the game this time around is to just kind of throw around our thoughts, what we liked, what we didn't like on these new films that we're uh, covering in this iteration. So had you heard of any of these before, Dan, or, or seen them? I had not seen any of these four prior to this past week. I was a little bit familiar with a couple of them, but mostly by reputation. Uh, the 1951 Scrooge, although it has subsequently been marketed just as A Christmas Carol, like the poster says A Christmas Carol, I think the DVD says A Christmas Carol, but yeah, so the 1951 Scrooge, I knew by reputation as one of the more acclaimed adaptations, particularly as far as straightforward drama adaptations. And then I knew in general that Zemeckis's mocap movies are known for looking kind of goofy and uncanny valley. Um, so I had never gotten around to, to watching that one, but hadn't seen any of them. And 
was definitely looking forward to plunging into A Christmas Carol again. One of the things I learned last year is that it is a really good story and you've, you've increased my appreciation for it and the many different ways it can be adapted with different spins and tones and variations on on similar things. But it, it always ends up being a satisfying watch. It's, it's just always you feel good by the end of it, no matter how many you watch. Uh, I counted. I've watched seven. I didn't watch just the four. I watched three or was it eight? I think it was eight, actually. Yeah, I watched four additional ones. So in the past week. So wow. maybe I've overdosed a little bit, but I've really, uh, really enjoyed it. So it's a good it's a good base framework for a story. And no surprise, it's been frequently adapted. The, the one other observation I was going to make here at the start is I actually think the slate that we picked this time around, I would say maybe all of them except the rich little one, make a much better introduction to the text in the sense that they are all very loyal to the text. Oh, that's another thing I did this week is I read the the Dickens novel. So I did my homework prior to this one. But yeah, it's it's interesting to me how how much more variation there was in last year's batch than in this one, because I think that's a theme we'll see is a lot of loyalty to the origin material. Yeah, so we tread a lot of familiar ground here, and it's refreshing when we get a bit of innovation. But broadly, you guys know the story. There's an old miser named Ebenezer Scrooge. He's nasty to his one employee and his one living relative. But then one Christmas Eve night, he gets visited by a trio of Yuletide ghosts who show him the error of his ways. And he wakes up a new man and he's going to face life with a sunnier disposition and try to make amends with the time that he has left. So there's our recap. So let's let's dig into some of these individual movies. I will agree that what I had heard about Scrooge 1951 was, as you say, that Alistair Sim, the star, was just like a quintessential great Scrooge by reputation. And not much beyond that. I feel like when you come into a movie with just people telling you that it's really, really great, it has big shoes to fill. Like I said, this is pretty freeform. We're just going to be spitballing things that we like, things that we didn't like, things that we noticed about each movie. Yeah, so I'm curious, you know, that's what I had heard too. Alistair, Sim, perhaps the, I like your phrasing, the quintessential Scrooge on, on screen. Was Is this one you had seen prior to this or what was your kind of reaction as you watched it? Yeah, I had not seen this one before. I almost thought that I had and then I popped it in and, so a couple things jumped out to me. One, this movie was pretty hard for me to find. Harder than I expected. I guess it was released in America as A Christmas Carol in its original England as Scrooge. But I, I found it eventually on Amazon Prime. I rented it. And it was this kind of rough, colorized version that was probably like the VHS release in 1989 because it's bookended by this narrator sitting in a chair and he's like scrooge that great 1951 classic <laughs> it's been 38 years since it came out let's sit back and enjoy it again <laughs> and then the movie has you know the weird off hues that colorized black and white films do that's pretty funny how did you track it down 
So I found a DVD rip streaming online. Okay. So I went to the nefarious gray areas of the internet, find it. Well, sometimes if it's hard to find it legitimately, that's what you got to do. Yeah. I did read that there was a release that had the bookend. And the 38 years thing is kind of funny because now it's a full 70 years old. It's just kind of crazy that 1951 movies are 70 years old. Like something, I know that the math says that. It just doesn't feel that way. Like when you say how long ago was 1950. I guess it's like you you always feel like the year is whatever you were when you were like 13 or something like that. Right. So for, for me, like 50 years ago is 1950 because I was just becoming a teenager shortly around the new millennium. So to me, yeah. Yeah, you base it all around the year 2000. 1990 was 10 years ago. 2000 was 10 years ago or, or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Oh, but 2016, 2017, and 2018 were two years ago, and it's still 2019. And so, yeah, the one I watched was the black and white. And I assume the original version captured on, on DVD digitally. So, yeah. So I'm, the way that you kind of led into that made me think that Maybe you didn't find Alistair Sim quite as quintessential as his reputation is. Kind of. I feel like Alistair Sim has one face, and it's this, like, sickly grimace that he's always making. I don't know, that that was my takeaway. I found a poster for Scrooge 1951, and it says, Alistair Sim in his first great dramatic comedy role. Like, well, what did he do before? Is this even a comedy? <laughs> and he's pretty old. I mean, you're playing Scrooge, you're like an old guy. So what is his background? I haven't seen him in anything else, but I haven't watched many very old British films. I'm not sure. I don't know how old he was when it was recorded. Sometimes I think it's easier to make yourself look a little bit older than it is to look a little bit younger. I'm not sure. I'm going to look real quick. How old was Alistair Sim? Let's see. So he was born in 1900. So he would have been 51. So, okay, yeah. He's he's always doing this, like, sideways frown, and he just has these big, droopy eyes. So, I, I really liked this Scrooge. In fact, I don't think I would put him head and shoulders above the rest, but I would put him in the upper tier of Scrooges for me. There's one thing that he did really well that I really liked, and that was the opening bit. I don't know, sometimes Scrooge, one thing I noticed watching a whole bunch in a row is... Scrooge in his early form can be so ghoulishly mean that he doesn't even seem like a real person. Like how can there be a successful businessman who is actually this cynical about life? Now we do know it's, it's somewhat seasonal in the sense that it's tarnished by his trauma from past Christmases, but there's no question that in general, he's, he's a big jerk. And sometimes it feels like he's so much of a jerk that I just, I can't buy him as a realistic character. This one, though, I actually kind of liked. It really seemed like he could just be a smarmy asshole who uses comedy, almost like snark, as a defense mechanism. It's like, I don't know, when I watched this one, I was like, okay, I could see someone actually kind of talking like this and being like this. And like, he's saying this horrible stuff about just let them die already, but he's saying it with a smirk. So you know that what he's saying is a little bit over the top. He's like a little bit of an edgelord or someone that you would encounter online who says ridiculous things to get provoke a bit of a reaction. And he just felt a little bit more human to me than than some of the other Scrooges. I, I also I just I liked 
almost all of the ways that he reacted to things as it went. And I liked at the end, he seemed the most insane. And that's one of the things I'm going to talk about later in this episode uh, when we're kind of doing some more freeform general observations is don't you think that like there might be something mentally wrong with Scrooge if you were to encounter him one day after he was saying some of the meanest shit you've ever heard a man say, and now all of a sudden he wants to be Father Christmas? I don't know. And I thought Alistair Sim captured that contradiction and the way that people around him reacted to it pretty well. Okay, I did write down great madman laugh as my very last note for this film. Okay. When he's ranting and raving the the morning after, for sure. Um, Some other thoughts about this one. I I like what you said about Edgelord Scrooge. That might turn me around a little bit. I think of, like, all these films, and maybe this is jumping the gun a little bit, none of them made me sad enough. Mm. But, like, especially the first two that we covered... Uh, just there's there's no maudlin aspect really and and maybe it is a smarmier scrooge that brings that about this one has some interesting plot additions it really expands parts we don't usually see of the past timeline so you really see like point a to point b to point c of scrooge getting his first job with Fezziwig. And then being like lured away by a more conniving businessman and coming up under him because we we actually see here where he meets Marley because this guy named Mr. Jorkin comes and lures him away with like higher pay and, and stuff, better perks. So then he and Marley are apprenticed under Jorkin. Then later on, we just keep checking in with what is Mr. Jorkin doing? And this is a dude who's not in the book. He's like the the gopher. Gopher is to Winnie the Pooh as Jorkin is to Christmas Carol. Like they have this scheme where Jorkin turns out to have been an embezzler and like the company is ruined. But luckily Scrooge and Marley have enough money saved up to buy it out from under the other board members. And so they get the controlling stake and the company becomes Scrooge and Marley. Really a lot more past exposition than I ever ex- expected to see. It was kind of interesting. Yeah, I agree. It intertwines some really interesting things in there. One is tying Scrooge's capitalistic impulses with industrialism and machines and the forward progress of technology, even at the expense of humanity, which honestly, like, that kind of fits because I, I'm not super up on my industrial revolution timeline, but I could definitely see this being a time around when the people who were making bold moves into machines and factories and new fangled banking type things were were making the big bucks and how that could be tempting for someone like Scrooge. Uh, I thought that was an interesting thematic connection I kind of liked. Yeah, we there's totally a theme of industrial soullessness and we see Fezziwig gradually fade into obscurity. Like he takes down his founded in 1766 sign. Mm -hmm. He's like, no, people will still love the old ways of mom and pop shops, whatever it is we do here. But no, the uh, corporate juggernaut Jorkin wins the day. And I I agree with something you kind of said early on there, which is that this one didn't make you very sad. And to me, that really comes down to the plot thread about Bell. So one thing I learned this week as I both read the novella and watched a couple more faithful adaptations is that despite what we saw in the musical adaptations last year, 
Bell is like a very, very minor plot point to this story. It's just like one piece among many. Whereas in the musical ones, I mean, it makes sense. It's like a very big romantic notion that plays well with musicals. Belle, the, so the, the lost love who, you know, they were engaged in most versions. They meet in Fezziwig's. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So big reveal that because we did do our homework and just like in the Sleepy Hollow episode a month or so ago, we both read the novella A Christmas Carol. And we found out Belle is not at Fezziwig's party. At least she's not mentioned being there. Right. And and because of that, the, there's really only one scene. Actually, there's two scenes in the book with her. And only one of them you typically see. And that's, of course, the iconic scene where he's usually depicted counting his money and she walks in. Or sometimes they're walking outside and having a heart-to-heart. But Belle basically says some variation of, you found another idol, a golden idol. You love money more than you love me. Would you even fall in love with me today if we met today? Our uh, engagement is broken. Basically, she she breaks off the engagement. And it's just one scene in the book for all of that. There's no intermittent development. It's just like a single snapshot. Yeah, and they don't even say what her name is until the next time she pops up, which is you see her married with children. And like the husband says her name once. So that's the second scene, and that's the one you don't see in most adaptations. It's like this other ghost of Christmas past scene where you see Belle several years later with a big happy brood and a loving husband. And it's like, this is what could have happened if you hadn't turned to money, if you had stayed true to your heart and to your love. I would say in general, Belle is very downplayed in the ones we watched this time around, which I I agree. I missed it. I really like it's the one the moment that really pulls on your heartstrings. Uh, To be fair, though, the ghost of Christmas past says that when they show up, he, she, it says, I'm the ghost of Christmas past. Scrooge says long past. And the ghost says, no, your past. That scene where Bell's with her husband is the only scene that Scrooge wasn't physically there for. So that's not technically part of his past. So I can see a justification for leaving it out. Yeah, I can buy that. I mean, it also just doesn't really... It's like, to me, that's an extrapolation that you can make. It's like this woman wanted a family life. And yeah, she managed to get a family life. And it could have been Scrooge, but we know that he didn't do it. So like, I feel like it's a, thematically just a little bit redundant. Yeah. Something specifically from 51 I thought was kind of interesting. Um, it's fairly common in adaptations to hear or infer that Scrooge's little sister, Fan, died when she was giving birth to his nephew, Fred, the the one living relative that he's always rebuffing. But here they specify that Scrooge's mother also died giving birth to Scrooge, which, if that's true, then how is Fan alive? Like, she's got to be his older sister in this version, but they don't really say and in most adaptations she's younger yeah i came to the same conclusion it seems like she should be a younger sister she can't be a younger sister with that thread but this one does not ever say whether she's a younger sister or an older sister and she unlike some of the adaptations where she's like an eight-year-old when they meet or whatever went in the very first scene of christmas past back at scrooge's school here she looked to be 
you know, a young adult just as he is also a young adult in that scene. So I, I think it, the movie's hoping you won't think too much about it, but I think that probably they're pretty close in age. And I guess you would have to say that she's probably a little bit older. But yeah, I would say what struck me most about this 51 version was how like comprehensive it makes the past segment. It takes you right up to when Marley dies and Scrooge is like sitting at work and his housekeeper comes and says, hey, Marley's dying. You should come home or, or go to see him, I guess, at the hospital or whatever the Victorian equivalent is of that. Wherever Marley is, you got to go there because he's going to die. And Scrooge just sits at work doing his Scrooge thing. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think it adds to the sense that in this one, Scrooge seems a little bit more human. You can kind of feel like how his downfall actually happened and how he became so unpleasant. I, I also just thought this one in general was quite well made. I thought the, the black and white cinematography, which, of course, you did not get to experience in your colorized. This happened 31 years ago or 38 years ago uh, version. But it just looks, I think it looks really pretty in black and white. The way that it introduces Ghost of Christmas Future, I feel like three out of the four that we saw do pretty interesting things with Ghost of Christmas Future. This one, you just see the hand of the Ghost of Christmas Future at first. It's a really cool framing shot, which is something that I enjoyed. There were a couple of cool angles in this one. Like at the start when Scrooge is going up his stairs. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a shot from the top of the stairs looking down at him that was pretty creepy. Yeah, it's just it's a well-crafted and visually appealing version. Oh, and the Marley on this one. I think in general, these Marleys that we watched this time were all pretty scary and like creepy in different ways. I thought this one was pretty creepy and the sound design was very jarring. Like you didn't know where the ghost was coming from or like what exactly it was doing. And then we got something we don't get in all adaptations which is like a glimpse of all the spirits suffering and unable to reclaim their corporeal power and like looking at agony on the humans who are still alive and living on the planet. I think we got a glimpse of that one in this, and, and I like that. This was neat. They had like a bunch of superimposed layers of the ghosts all imploring, trying to help the people. And they're like all different sizes. They're just like stuck all over the frame, writhing. Mm -hmm. It was, it was cool. Nice old timey effect. A couple other bullet points for this one. There's an observation that the ghost of Christmas present makes where he says, we spirits of Christmas do not live only one day of our year. We live the full 365 as does the child born in Bethlehem. I mean, this answers the question of are the ghosts relevant at all the rest of the year? Which is something I've wondered about. Do they only ever think about Christmas? Uh, especially in the case of present, does he only exist for a single day? No, I guess he exists for one year. But then he throws in like a little bit of a religious angle. Just, you know, people don't think about Jesus as much as they should. They only think about him at Christmas. You know, you can't just be a Christmas and Easter Christian, guys. Right. Something not specific to this version, but I noticed when I read the book, I think Marley says something. I've sat with you several times since I've passed, like implying that he's always kind of haunting and hanging around. But this is just the time that he happened to show himself. 
And I thought that was kind of creepy and underexplored. Like, I'm like, are there, in this mythology of ghosts, are, are there always spirits hanging around? I mean, I guess the answer is yes, because we see Scrooge get that glimpse of the, the spirit world for a moment. What is it? Is it a ghost? Is it a creature from the realm of nightmares? Perhaps. Bell's name is Alice in Scrooge 51. Yeah. Every once in a while, there will be a version that just changes up her name for unclear reasons, but it's it's Alice here. My theory last year was that in modern times, the name Bell is so strongly associated with Beauty and the Beast that that's all that people will think of. But you don't have that excuse here, so I don't know why they went with Alice instead of Bell. Maybe Bell's not sufficiently British? I don't know. Hmm. Interesting. This one gives a whole lot of business to Scrooge's like housekeeper, Mrs. Dilbert. Mm-hmm. So traditionally she pops in as one of the scavengers who has taken something from his bedchamber or off of his body and is selling it to the fence in the seedy alley. But here she's just present a lot. One, that scene with the scavengers just goes on and on. It's like the longest version of that scene I've ever seen. But then she's also important at the end when Scrooge is changed and is upbeat and generous and gregarious. She even gets like some of the turkey boys traditional lines where Scrooge throws open the window and says, what day is today? And the the kid says, well, it's Christmas day. But here, Mrs. Dilbert says that. He like grabs her and shakes her. Oh, I haven't missed it. And this is where we get some of that good, like, is he completely insane acting? Yeah, this is the one that that really played that up. And I thought that was kind of funny. The housekeeper who just clearly does not like Scrooge and is very much worried for her own safety as he's like storming down the stairs at her and stuff. I thought that was pretty funny. It was a good addition to this one. I did like he says a line. I don't deserve to be so happy, but I just can't help it. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. Warmed my heart a little bit. Also, I think this was the only version I've seen where he apologizes to the nephew. Like, he shows up at the house for the party that he said he wasn't going to come to and was pretty mean about it. Uh, Here, he's actually like, yeah, that wasn't cool. I feel like the nephew gets the most variation. The the nephew and his sometimes wife, sometimes fiance. The exact nature of how... Scrooge reconciles with them is something that just gets depicted so many different ways. Like every adaptation has its own spin on it. I liked this one, but it wasn't my favorite of the four that we watched. There's there's one here that we'll get to in a minute that didn't my favorite version of the reconciliation. Uh, one last thought I had here on this one. This one ends with Silent Night playing. I always like it when a good, well-known song that makes you think of a specific time or a specific emotion stirs you and so i liked going out to silent night it's definitely christmasy yeah i've heard a lot of people single that one out as like the quintessential christmas carol uh to go along perhaps with the quintessential scrooge there you go it is indeed a christmas carol whoa you're blowing my mind anything else you wanted to mention about that one before we uh talk about our second film of the evening no i'm ready to go Okay, so this was one that Dan threw out. Uh, He was just kind of reading off the list of adaptations of A Christmas Carol on Wikipedia, and he happened to say, oh, Rich Little has one. At this point, number four, 
would have been the Patrick Stewart adaptation with uh, Captain Picard as Scrooge. But uh, I was just thinking, oh, man, we're going to have like a bunch of super loyal live action adaptations and just not have any variation at all. So here was a bit of spice and variety. I thought, let's assign the version from 1978 where Rich Little plays every character as an impression of a celebrity of the time or somewhat before the time. Yeah. I did not know who Rich Little was, and I did not know what this was going to be when we went into it. So needless to say, I was very surprised when we pulled this up. I'm surprised you even said then, oh, Rich Little has one. Maybe you misread my tone. I think I was just like, I had missed that in my list of them. I was like, oh, here's another one I missed, and it's blank. I really honestly don't know why I would have like enthusiastically brought Rich Little to the table because i did not know I, i'm like i'm not saying he's bad i just did not know who he was so it was a surprise <laughs> well then it, this kind of emerged fully formed from our subconscious but <laughs> i suppose it was definitely different so pretty much i did know that rich little was an impressionist but i don't think i'd ever seen him do anything before so this originally aired on the Canadian TV channel, CBC, in 1978, and then got an HBO premiere in America the next year, 1979. I think this is, like, the least sad Christmas Carol ever. And it's very condensed in terms of the scenes that we get, because the point of it really is showcasing the different impressions and actually doing a pretty good job of, like, working in jokes that channel the style of the comedians and stars being imitated. Yeah, it kind of flip-flopped for me. Sometimes it was just like, hey, wouldn't it be funny if Richard Nixon was actually Marley the ghost. Wouldn't that be hilarious? And like that, the joke didn't go any deeper than that sometimes. But then sometimes they brought in like actual gags related to the character. By far his favorite one is he plays W.C. Fields as Scrooge. And I guess W.C. Fields was known for being an alcoholic. I couldn't have told you that, but sure. So he's an alcoholic. And there's about 75 jokes about drinking too much and this uh, all directed at wc fields um but he he does the obvious one early that actually got a chuckle out of me it was a joke about three spirits and he says some i forget exactly how he phrased it but a play on spirits also being a drink yeah that was good it it made me see the potential in making like a christmas carol pop-up bar Mm, spirit of christmas yet to come yeah so just to rattle off some of the impressions, as you mentioned, W.C. Fields as Scrooge. We've got Richard Nixon as Marley. And as it was going along, I was trying to see how many I would actually be able to recognize and place who they were supposed to be. And I'll say I got like three quarters of the way through before I hit like three in a row. I'd, I just didn't know who they were supposed to be. What was your track record like? I was doing pretty well. I, I didn't quite make it that far before I hit one that I didn't know. One that I didn't know fairly early was Paul Lind plays... I forget who he is. He, He's Bob Cratchit. Is he Cratchit? Okay. So I didn't know who that, that guy was. And then you and I subsequently had a conversation about who he was, and I read a Wikipedia article about him. So I'm now 
this was almost like an educational film for me. I had to like revisit. It's like, why are we making jokes about W.C. Fields and alcohol? And it's like, oh, he was a notorious alcoholic. So like I was doing Googling. It was like it was an unintentional entertainment history course for me doing doing research on this. But most of them I got. I, I will say I don't think I would have gotten Inspector Clouseau as the he's is he the last ghost, I think. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Except they did the Pink Panther music. So I was like, oh, it's that guy. Okay. Yeah, so for anyone uninitiated, Paul Lind, he voiced Templeton the Rat in the Hanna-Barbera Charlotte's Web from the 70s. That's that's my key resource. Uh, but he also had a recurring role on Bewitched as Samantha's uncle, who's a warlock. He, for a long time, he was like prominently featured on the Hollywood Squares game show. And he, he had a distinctive, like, smarmy voice. He was just like a camp, barely closeted gay man in the 60s. But a, a couple other uh, roles that we get here. Fred the Nephew is portrayed as Johnny Carson. The guys who come to collect the, the coins for the poor are Laurel and Hardy. And this was a place where I thought they captured the comedic stylings pretty well. They like The gags they were doing felt very Laurel and Hardy. And the ghosts, for past, we had Humphrey Bogart, present was Columbo, and future was Inspector Clouseau, as played by Peter Sellers in the Pink Panther movies. And I was scratching my head, why in the world did they make all three ghosts like private investigator characters in trench coats? <laughs> yeah, I noticed that trend too, I couldn't put a finger on how you tie ghosts to detectives. I guess he just wanted something to separate them from the rest. And most of the other people are like not characters, but actors. I mean, I guess Bogart is not specifically a character. Maybe he's like whoever he is in Maltese Falcon or something like that. But he, he just seemed to be Bogart. But yeah, it, it was kind of interesting that he did that. I also can we just like I feel like we kind of jumped into what this is without like this is just so weird. I was just watching this whole time and being like, how did this thing exist? It's a one man show of a Christmas Carol where he makes every character an impression of someone else. And by the way, like I think some of these impressions were already outdated in the 70s. Like I don't know when Laurel and Hardy were still making movies, but I'm pretty sure they weren't in the 70s. And I was like, my mouth was open the whole time at the sheer existence of this thing. That might be my favorite part of, of this whole thing is just its existence is so unpredictable and astonishing to me. Yeah, thank you for backing us up and showing us the big picture for a moment. <laughs> the tone is like a 70s sitcom with an incessant laugh track and like every other thing uttered needs to be a punchline. It just it doesn't feel like a Christmas carol in tone often does yeah but technically speaking i thought they did a pretty good job blocking it and shooting it to make one actor in all the roles not feel too contrived i agree with that yeah it's it's pretty well set up knowing that that's the central conceit mm -hmm. couple other roles uh, groucho marx is there as fezziwig that's there's another throwback edith bunker is uh, cratchit's wife so uh, the the wife from All in the Family, there's the the one that threw me was the future scene 
is one you only occasionally get where it's Scrooge's co-workers or, or like his fellow uh, captains of industry that he runs into at the bank. And in the future scene, they're chuckling about, oh, who did he leave his money to? Is anybody actually going to go to his funeral? And these three guys, one was clearly John Wayne, and then the other two, I had no idea. Uh, one is George Burns, who maybe I had seen an episode of his show with Gracie Allen at some point in the past. And then one was James Mason, who I guess is Captain Nemo from the old 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea movie. But I, I just, I didn't recognize him at all. You said he pops up among other impressionists? Yeah, the way that I knew it was him is every other impressionist I've ever seen. Not Maybe not every other impressionist I've ever seen at least two or three impressionists I've seen do a James Mason. He's got a very distinctive kind of British school of acting, dramatic Shakespearean way of reading things that is just very distinctive and very fun to impersonate, I think. And so I recognized him from other impressions, mainly. Bill Hader does a good one. Kevin Spacey does a good one. I feel like I've seen one other on top of that. But yeah. Another one that was kind of out of left field was Truman Capote as Tiny Tim. And <laughs> I liked the introduction of this character because like Cratchit comes in carrying a child on his shoulders and the child is in the Truman Capote costume. And then he sets the kid down and it cuts into a close up of his face. And then it's adult rich little doing the Truman Capote in close up. That was kind of funny, yeah. There were also a couple jokes that I legitimately laughed at in this film that weren't necessarily connected to any impression specifically. Like at the Cratchit dinner where they're sharing the meager rations, they have like a bowl of soup and Cratchit says, pass the paintbrush. And he dips it into the soup and spreads just the tiniest little bit of soup at the bottom of his bowl with a paintbrush. That's pretty good, yeah. Any any other positive takeaways from this one, Dan? Or just things that jumped out at you? So this one is about 50 minutes long. That was too long for me for to sustain the premise. I mean, it's hard to tell this story in much shorter than that. Although there are a handful of half-hour long adaptations. But it still felt like... It was working hard to stretch its gimmick out long enough. That that was just one thing that I thought. It's like I could have done with this maybe being uh, 15 minutes shorter than it was. <laughs> but I'm always glad that weird things exist. So, you know, I, I, I'm not begrudging this thing its existence, even if it didn't 100% tickle my fancy. That's fair. Shout out to the impressive cemetery set for when Scrooge is at his own grave, because this is just, it was pretty big and impressive, more impressive than a lot of the other set pieces. And I can tell you being a member of a bunch of Halloween forums, whoever was running these fog machines knew what they were doing, because this is the best fog machine fog I've ever seen. Like, they've got a great fog chiller hidden somewhere. So if you don't know, you got to keep your fog machine fog cold if you want it to cling to the ground. Otherwise, it's just going to blow everywhere and dissipate. Here, this was like pea soup fog. It drifted to the edge of this grave and just immediately dropped down to the bottom of the grave. Like, 
this is the heaviest, chillest fog I've ever seen in a movie. Oh, that's cool. Um, so eight out of eight for the fog. <laughs> but we we have other things to talk about here. But but as you said, it's condensed. I think each ghost got like one extended scene. Like the past ghost is entirely at Fezziwig's party, I think. The present ghost is entirely at Cratchit's house. And the future might have two. It's like a scene with the business partners, this trio of colleagues, and then briefly the scene at the grave. But like a lot of stuff you commonly see, you don't hear. Are we ready to talk Christmas Carol 1984? Yeah, let's go for it. So what had been your exposure to the 1984 TV movie, A Christmas Carol, starring George C. Scott? This is one that I knew nothing about going into it. Um, I, I, did, I did read, I think it was either Wikipedia or somewhere. I read that it was a TV movie, so temper your production value expectations a little bit. And also that it was regarded as among the most faithful to the novel. So those were kind of really the only things I knew going into it. Yeah, for whatever reason, this one has always been held up by my dad as being like the key Christmas Carol. Interesting. It was on TV, I guess, the year my parents got married. And I think George C. Scott really sells his Scrooge. This is one of the ones that comes to mind for me just because he's really intimidating. Like, he's really icy at the start. Maybe, maybe he doesn't sell it as well once he's seen the light and transformed. But, like, if I'm picturing scary Scrooge glowering at me, I'll, I'll often picture George C. Scott. Oh, I completely agree with that. He's, like, he's just great as this just colossal prick just this shitty old man yelling at people and being scary mean about it he really embodies that early on the one section for him that did not work for me that well is the christmas past section it did kind of reflect the book because the the book scrooge isn't really doing that much reacting to what's going on there there's a couple things like he's excited about being at his old stomping grounds and seeing himself read these books he read when he was a kid but like he's not getting emotional when Belle is walking away, for example, in the book. And similarly here, he's kind of passive, I thought, during the Christmas past segments. But I really came around on him later in the Christmas present and then in the Christmas future and then the transformation. He's up there for me as well. I'd probably let me think about this, but I'd probably put him in like the top the tier of the top three or four of the, the Scrooges that we've seen. I liked him. Yeah, kind of interesting that he never hides his American accent, uh, despite everybody else being British, it seems like. Oh, interesting, yeah. But, uh, yeah, he's he chills the room enough that you don't really notice. And, as you said, it, it seems like it's definitely among the more thorough, accurate adaptations of the book. Uh, we just happen to pick a bunch that draw, like, extensively from the original text, but this is one of them. I really like the lighting, too. There's a couple scenes where, like, something dramatic will happen and everything will go dark, except there will be, like, a beam of light on Scrooge's face. Yeah, th there were some cool production things in this one. This one had a Marley that just gave me the willies. It's like, they don't make him ghostly. They just painted him all silver and gave him, like, these weird gray contact lenses. 
Yeah, like opaque, drowned corpse contact. Really scary. Yeah, I mean, not skimping on the creepiness. He's not like a person who's there having a conversation. Like, we talked about how George Costanza, what's his actual name? I can't remember. Jason Alexander. Yeah, Jason Alexander. How he appears in one that we watched last year. And he kind of is like a person in that, you know? But here, the way that this ghost is pictured, it's like creepy, ghosty, like only partially on this plane of existence interaction stuff. Um, I, I thought this one is among the best for selling the scariness of the initial Marley encounter. Yeah, there's a line in the book that Scrooge says that doesn't always carry over where he like holds something up and he asks Marley if he sees it. And Marley says, I do. And Scrooge says, well, you're not looking at it. And Marley says, and yet I see it all the same. That doesn't always really like line up with what's going on, if it's even included. But here it made a lot of sense because he's got like the scary ghost eyes and he's not really looking Scrooge in the face. He's just kind of staring off a thousand yards. Right. I thought the the ghost of Christmas passed in this one was pretty meh like she, there was nothing distinct about her she was just like a woman reading lines but the, the ghost of christmas present is was is really dashing in this one and i feel like he was from something i'm trying to remember what it was to me he looks a little like king arthur in the monty python and the holy grail it's not him he looks like a king yeah but he kind of carries himself with a lot of charisma it's edward woodward which is the heck of a name but <laughs> oh so apparently he's the, the star of the wicker man the british one okay and appeared in a couple of other things of note but yeah i noticed in the poster he's the only other character beyond scrooge who appears and he's kind of in the corner there is like giving a handsome mug shot trying to have some his charisma spill out onto the poster and stuff so i, I thought that was kind of funny but you want to talk about fog machines this ghost of christmas future segment Probably my favorite out of any of the ones we've seen. This There's like a shot of the creepy hooded ghost appearing and the ground is like all fog. And I don't, it, it must be a fog machine, but I don't know how they made it look so smoky and creepy. And then just everything about this ghost of Christmas past is so creepy. They show him in shadow profile all the time. Just, yeah, all around a great Christmas future. Yeah, when the ghost shows up, I think it was this version, and Scrooge is, like, asking him questions, and he'll do this, like, little nod, and there'll be, like, this almost like a screeching sound effect, and it was creepy every time. As we went along, I wrote down fewer bullet points, but that's <laughs> that's all right, because we've got uh, some, like, high-level, broad talking points to hit. Uh, did you have anything else you wanted to say about 84 specifically? Yes, just a couple other things. So I mentioned this also has maybe my favorite changed Scrooge finale. In particular, he goes to the nephew Fred's house with the fiance or wife. I forget which one she is in this and has this really heartfelt connection with Fred, like this, this excellent reconciliation with him and very moving. And he introduces himself to the nephew's wife or fiance and like welcoming her to the family and everybody's getting choked up. And like 
I was getting choked up myself as this was happening. George C. Scott is really selling the hell out of his humility and remorse out of what had come into this. And so this was my favorite Fred and Scrooge reunion scene here. Yeah, I agree. I also like when he's visiting the party and, you know, they can't see him because he's there with the ghost of Christmas present and everybody is like playing games and he starts playing the games. Yeah, yeah, that's a good beat. I like that too. And he's like getting really into it and like, oh man, I'd be so good at this game if I were actually physically here. Oh yeah, this the game for this one was the similes. And so he kept like getting the simile. It's like, you're as tight as a blank. And he's like, it's a drum. You're as tight as a drum. And so he's getting, he's like shouting them out as, as they're coming up and he knows them. And I feel like he mentions one when he goes and meets the, the nephew's fiance or wife. But yeah, I like that. Now, since we're talking about the change Scrooge segment, one thing I really noticed in viewing a lot of these within a week is that the logistics are a little peculiar and not very intuitive of the Christmas day because he really has multiple things that he needs to do. And the one that always trips me up. So we need to preserve the surprise of him being changed for Cratchit the next morning. But we also need him to make the Cratchit's Christmas good. And so we typically don't see him go to the Cratchit's. He has to, of course, buy the turkey, the one that's twice as big as the little kid outside the window. But he used, he sends it anonymously to the Cratchit's, which to me is just kind of a weird way of doing it. Like, I don't know if an anonymous turkey showed up at my house, I would be kind of surprised. I don't know what I would feel about that. You have a secret turkey admirer. <laughs> yeah, some versions he goes to the house. Right. Like, I feel like in Scrooge 70, he goes over there in the Santa costume. And in Mickey's Christmas Carol, he goes over there. But that trims the fat a lot. So it works. It works okay there because there's no secret turkey you have to worry about. And in, in Muppet Christmas Carol, even though that's not one we watched this time, I, I did watch it this week. I noticed that he goes and he reunites with Nephew Fred. And then he brings Nephew Fred and also like lots of other people with him to the Cratchits and essentially invites himself and everyone into the Cratchits for Christmas dinner, which is a bold move. I'd have to say, like going to some family's Christmas dinner and saying, hey, I'm your boss. So guess what? I'm coming in and so are all of these people I brought with me. But I have a big turkey that you can now cook for us to eat. <laughs> Power play. Uh, man, in that one, he also like reconnects with Fezziwig and the schoolmaster for some reason, which how are they even still alive? <laughs> I don't like that. That's in Muppets? Yeah. Yeah, that's funny. <laughs> I guess Muppets can live forever. Yeah, yeah. And so now at this point, we'd watched three versions of A Christmas Carol, and we gathered together, just like Scrooge and Nephew Fred, for the final adaptation that we're directly considering for this episode, which was A Christmas Carol 2009, directed by Robert Zemeckis, and brought to life through his motion capture technique. Uh, he did a string of these movies where, he, you know, he straps like the suits onto everybody with the little plastic ping pong balls that track their motions. And then they like physically act out their 
actions that then get mapped onto some CGI character. And uh, on on one of these movies I saw on the like behind the scenes featurette, it actually showed like the environment that they shoot in. And there's like a hundred physical cameras and there's like more physical stuff than you would expect. Uh, but they shoot it from like every possible angle. And then it's almost like they can decide what the camera's going to do in the editing. For one, I just thought it was all made in the computer. But there's there's more physically there than you might think. And I just thought it was really cool that they can, like, decide how the camera's going to move after the fact. Because they shot it from so many different angles. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. I know Zemeckis did a lot of experimenting with this. He also did the Polar Express, which I think is in particular famous for the uncanny valley output of the process. It's like the motion is captured, but the eyes just stay super soulless. And 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 yeah, Polar Express was 2004, I think. And it was like his first stab at one of these Christmas mocaps. And uh, this is almost like a, another try. So yeah, it was, it was really cool to watch it with you. And uh, one thing that was special about it for me at least is you and I have talked a lot about the fact that you have a 3d TV with 3d blu-rays and we've been talking about finding the right time for me to come over and watch a, a 3d blu-ray um, with you. So I got to do that and that was pretty cool. Yeah. This was kind of a 2010 fad that larger TVs offered the, the blu-ray 3d feature and it's not just that the disc has to be Blu-ray 3D. You also got to have a special player for it and a special TV and the special glasses, which they have these like active shutters in them. And so you switch the glasses on and it's like the lenses themselves alternate between light and dark. It's like. Yeah, I thought some of the effects were really cool, especially when it looked like the movie was going into the screen. I thought that was really impressive and immersive. When stuff was coming out at you, particularly if it was supposed to be right in front of you, like some of the snow, for example, in this Christmas Carol, it's like right in front of you. That gave me a little bit of headache and it like it didn't look quite right to me. I also felt like I don't know how much of this is the 3D or, or what, but that some of the brightness of the colors were diminished. And I wonder if like having to do the light, dark flicker thing makes it harder to get really bright colors in this type of 3d but overall definitely cool and something i was glad to experience and it's definitely cool you can do it right in your own house right in front of your own tv some kind of special yeah it felt like a culmination it felt climactic that for this fourth of the year and eighth of the pod christmas carol adaptation that we would join together for this visual feast mm-hmm and it's clear that the movie was made with 3D in mind. There's lots of shifting and rotating perspectives on things. Like you'll get a like a bird's eye view of a church steeple and then the camera will tilt down and you'll see the the pointy cross on top like poke you in the eye and then rotate around. And there's a lot of thrill ride segments. Particularly there's an extended one at the start of Christmas Future which I got to say took me out of the movie a little bit. 
you have these really thoughtful scenes of depicting evocative details from the book. And then all of a sudden we're like running around streets of London, getting chased by a ghost for no obvious reason. Yeah, that's true. Well, for one, each of the ghosts like presents their tableaus a different way. Oh, right off the gate, we have to say there's a lot of doubling with these actors too. Kind of like how Tom Hanks plays a ton of roles in Polar Express. Here, everybody's popping up all over the place. There's like a handful of four actors playing all the parts. Uh, Jim Carrey is the star. He plays Scrooge. He also plays all the ghosts, uh, except for Marley, who is Gary Oldman, who also plays Bob Cratchit. Then you've got uh, Robin Penn Wright as Fan and Belle, and Carrie Elwes, the, the co-star to Robin Wright from Princess Bride, playing all the other miscellaneous people. Yeah, Colin Firth plays Nephew Fred. They try to like put the general face of the actor on the characters to mixed effects. I thought... Jim Carrey in sort of a morphed version of him with like pointy nose and chin looked really good as Scrooge. Some of the other ones looked a little bit less good. Gary Oldman on Bob Cratchit gave me the heebie-jeebies and Colin Firth playing the the Fred guy looked like Mr. Hanky the Christmas Pooh from South Park. He, he wasn't doing it for me, but getting some of that uncanny valley stuff. Yeah, so some mixed results on the, the actual mocap, but I did quite like the way that Jim Carrey looked. He was a little cartoony for me. Like, his nose and chin are so pointed, they make like a crescent moon shape. Uh-huh. But uh, overall, his performance as Scrooge, I rather liked. When he plays the different ghosts, it's like for... I guess Future doesn't really talk, but the other two he did, like, distinct accents for. So, past has an Irish accent and then present has like a, a Liverpool accent. He sounds like a beetle, but I think we got to say that past ghost here is like a candle man, which is common that a candle will be incorporated into the past costume somehow because it's mentioned in the book that they carry around like a candle snuffer. Like a, a little old-timey cone that you would put over the candle flame when you don't want the candle to be lit anymore. And uh, at the end of the act, he, like, murders the ghost by smothering it with the, the, the candle cap. But, but anyway, my point is that a candle flame with Jim Carrey's face stuck on it looks super weird. Yeah. And I was not into it when I watched this in theaters the first time. Oh, because my, my past exposure to this movie was I actually did see this one in theaters in 2009. And my opinion of it may have been colored because for whatever reason, I went to see three movies in theaters in two days. I saw Fantastic Mr. Fox one morning. And then that night I saw Christmas Carol 2009. And then the next day I saw The Men Who Stare at Goats. So it was just kind of an overabundance of theater going. They all kind of bled together for me. But my key memories of this one were like I was not on board with the weird carry candle and also the extended chase sequence that happens during the future just felt completely unnecessary. It felt like they were sitting there with a movie that was 80 minutes long instead of 90. And they're like, this isn't going to work. We, we need something to fill the time. 
And so we're going to have Scrooge run around the streets, changing size for some reason. Yeah, it was, it was odd. Sometimes it felt like a tech demo, like it was showing off. Look at all the cool things you can do with mocap. Um, I will say this one on the flip side has a lot of specific details from the book that are not often depicted in the adaptations for whatever reason. It also is like scary and intense in a way that many of the adaptations simply can't be because like the ghostiness is hard to depict in, you know, live action where that you can if you have a high budget for an animated film. Like, I don't know, the way that Ghost of Christmas Present, he flies him around and then he kind of dies at the end and just like all these little details. The way that the door knocker transforms is impressive and lots of cool looking stuff that was like actually really good storytelling, picking up the tone and specific things from the novel. And then the flip side of it is you have some really ugly mocap character or like a thrill ride tech demo type thing for five minutes at a time that takes you out of it. So for me, this one was, it kind of flip-flopped in terms of how I was feeling about it, where I really liked it early on. And then I started to feel a little more detached as it got a little closer towards the end. And it felt like it was straining a little bit. I'll say my opinion actually rose this second watch through. Mm -hmm. Uh, So the ghosts show their scenes to Scrooge different ways. Uh, With past, he's flying around, which is pretty common. But then present does this weird thing where he, like, turns the floor of the room into a glass-bottom boat so they can look down through the floor and see stuff going on underneath. And then, like, the whole room flies around like a a crazy Tower of Terror elevator or something. Hmm. And then... Uh, when the future comes, I think the scenes just like morph around them. The The future here is, like I said, he's like chasing Scrooge around. And then at some point, Scrooge shrinks. And so for the future scenes, he's like a fly on the wall. Like he's he's off tiny in the corner as the things are happening. So, yeah, kind of like a tech demo, just different perspectives on these things that we've gotten used to seeing. One other thing. As a whole, this one's pretty scary. Like, there's a lot of ghoulishness here. Like, the very first shot of the movie is when it says, Marley was dead to begin with. You, I mean, you're right, like, in the coffin with his corpse. Right. I like this opening segment where, like, it's mentioned in the book that Scrooge is the one who signs the death certificate. And here we actually see that as kind of the prelude and how he's very businesslike and cynical about it and like not showing sadness about his business partner dying. It's a good way to kind of meet this character at his uh, early selfish self. But I agree that it also sets a, a tone for us encountering the macabre over the next hour and a half. And I thought this was a cool opening scene. Oh, and part of the ghosts being portrayed by Jim Carrey is that they are kind of connected to Scrooge in some way. The ghost of Christmas present is always laughing. And then at the end, when Scrooge is a happy, upbeat, positive dude, he laughs and he's like, wait a minute, I've heard that laugh before. But I think the neatest way that they did this was that they had the ghost of Christmas future be Scrooge's shadow. Yes, this was awesome. This was so creative. 
and the shadows like came alive. And, you know, in the, the way that it's just, he's described as shadowy in the novel, but having him actually be a shadow was just really nifty and um, used to like cool visual effect. I really love this effect. Did you have anything you wanted to add about 2009's version before we shift to our next tableau? No, just to reiterate that it was awesome to watch it in person with you. And same to you. This is the season of conviviality. But uh, Dan has said it already. We did also throw the original 1843 text into consideration. We both read it. Dan, for the first time, I was rereading it. I pulled out my, like, 1963 printed edition. Did you listen to the audiobook? Yes. I think it was narrated by Hugh Grant. Oh, cool. Yeah, uh, Audible has, if you're a member for any of their subscription plans, it has, like, three free versions you can download. There was one with Tim Curry that I considered, but I think I read that it was a little bit of bridge, and I wanted the whole one, so I listened to the Hugh Grant one. Now, I was reading it specifically to check accuracy mm. and like see whether specific little things I noticed in this go-round in a couple different adaptations, whether those things were actually in the book, and they all were. So <laughs> the, the three things I was specifically looking for that I noticed in like Scrooge 51 was there's a mention when we see all of Bob Cratchit's kids that... His oldest son, Peter Cratchit, has just been given his work shirt. So he's got this huge shirt collar. And this is even in, like, Mr. Magoo's Christmas Carol that we watched last year. But there, there's a moment when he pulls Peter aside and he says, Well, Peter, you're to be a man of business. I've got a job offer lined up for you. So in 1951, I was wondering, well... What job has he got for Peter? Is he going to, like, as unhappy as he seems, is he going to bring him to work for Mr. Scrooge? Or what is he going to do? And then in, I think it's 84, he says, Mr. Scrooge's nephew, Fred, has offered a job for you. Which makes a little more sense, I would think. Uh, but actually, in the novel, both of those things happen. In the present Cratchit scene he says hey I've got a job for you but he doesn't say what it is and then in the future scene when we see that Tiny Tim has died Cratchit mentions that he met the nephew in the street and the nephew offered his condolences but also offered Peter a job so this is super nitty gritty but it's the kind of thing you think about when you've watched like 12 versions of A Christmas Carol uh, just Real quick, the other things. One is that when Scrooge is a boy in the schoolhouse and nobody else is there spending the Christmas holidays with him, he talks about that he entertained himself by reading the Arabian Nights and specifically the story of Ali Baba. And this is in, it's mentioned in 51. It's expounded on a little bit in 84. Uh, one version I watched last year that I didn't talk about was the 2019 miniseries that's like three hours long, and there Alibaba is like actually present as a character. Yeah, it's kind of reflective of how it's written in the book. It's kind of odd. He like talks about almost as if he's seen people in front of him as he's witnessing his younger self read a book. And he talks about how he sees Alibaba. Oh, look, there he is. 
it's it's just kind of a peculiar thing in the book. But yeah, I'd be interested to see how that gets fleshed out in that miniseries. And then the last thing I was looking for was I noticed in 51, there's a horny party guest at Fred's Christmas party named Mr. Topper, who's just really going after this one girl at the party. And I think the line is the nephew and the nephew's wife are kind of playfully bantering, like bickering married couple over whether the wife was a good cook or not. Like, did she do a good job making the Christmas dinner? And Mr. Topper, the party guest, he's like, well, I'm a bachelor, so I can't possibly offer uh, an opinion on newlywed matters. And he's like wink winking at this one girl. And he popped up, Mr. Topper, in like 51, 84. He isn't named, but the girl that he's after is there in 2009. And sure enough, Topper and the girl are in the book. I like that. That's a good pull. Was there anything that you noticed that we haven't uh, given lip service to when you were reading this book for the first time, Dan? Yeah, so one thing that I'm trying to recall if it's been in any of the eight that we've discussed on the podcast from last year's episode and this year's episode. And that is when he goes upstairs after he sees the knocker, but before he encounters Marley in his bedroom, he describes seeing what appears to be a ghostly hearse going up his stairs. And that's just such a weird image that I had not seen anywhere. And that one kind of surprised me when I read it. Yeah, there's a couple that kind of get there. Like in 84, the hearse is like driving alongside him and it like calls out to him. Mm. And actually they do this in Scrooge 1970. So if you go back to the tape, you'll see like when he walks into his house, there's a like a hearse drives through the front room past him. Gotcha. So it has been there. Okay. That, yeah, I thought that was a pretty, pretty interesting one. And there's one other detail that I, I don't recall appearing last year, but appeared in a few of them this time. And it's this weird segment in Christmas Present where under Christmas Present's robes are two semi-human creatures that he calls ignorance and want. And it's just a weird kind of diversion from what is otherwise like just experiencing real life things to have like these creatures I mean, obviously, the ghost kind of guiding you, but then these things. Well, they're like malnourished children. And I think Dickens is making a point. He just really wants to drive home that poverty is bad and we overlook it, which I think is a good point and ties in somewhat with what Scrooge's problem is that, you know, he's he's overlooking the suffering of the poor, but it's on one hand, like, really on the nose and heavy-handed, and on the other hand, it's hard to parse, too. Like, the wording, it's, doom is written on his brow of, one is ignorance and one his want, but beware ignorance more, and I think this one could have used another pass at the editing. Like, either just cut it or make it a little more clear what you're trying to say and make it fit the rest of the story a little better. That's my take on the starving, gross, robe children. Gotcha. Yeah. Overall, it was just interesting to to actually see it all pieced together. I guess my last thought is, given its pretty brisk nature and all the scenes it has, 
moments of it are I'm trying to think of what the right word is, like almost impressionistic in how you don't always get a full sense of like, when did the scene transition happen? And like, what is Scrooge actually seeing at this moment? It's like things are captured in dialogue and then, you know, you're in a new scene and I don't know, it's kind of kind of neat. And I just want to toss out the name of one other version I caught up with this week, which is the 1971 half hour long animated version. It's actually not even a half hour long. It's like 25 minutes. This one, the best animated short Oscar the year it came out. Have you seen this one? Whoa, no, I never have. So it's only it's less than a half hour long, so it is crazy rushed. But it's the one that best captured the feeling of like the sort of occasionally fractured impressionistic reality. I'm going to send you a link for this one because I think it is a tour de force of animation. And I wish it was like twice as long because it would rank among my favorites if it had time to flesh out its story a little bit more. And it's animated by Richard Williams, who um, has made uh, a handful of animation projects. I think he's probably best known for having a Thief and the Cobbler project that he worked on forever that finally got released in a butchered form by Miramax at some point. So, uh, but yeah, he made this Christmas Carol short that I think is worth watching too. And of course we both watched Mickey's Christmas Carol somewhat recently that might have to get more thorough coverage. Maybe next year we'll see. Uh, but I, I do enjoy that one. That was the first version I ever saw as a, as a young child. And, uh, I really enjoy Alan Young's voice performance as Scrooge McDuck. Uh, he That was kind of his debut, and then he would go on to star in DuckTales. Yeah, I liked that too. The, the last one that I watched was the 1938 edition, which is on the shorter end. It's only like 65 minutes or something. Um, it cuts out basically anything that's downbeat, like The Lost Love. Aside from the kind of goofy 70s comedy comedy one we saw is the most cheerful version that I've seen. But I also like that one. It had really good production values. Felt like a classic studio era Hollywood production where everyone's a movie star and smiling big and you feel good the whole time you're watching it. Like what, what was the one that we watched with Parasite? It happened on Fifth Avenue. So it sounds like there's lots of other versions that we could still cover. Maybe some that we still haven't even seen or heard of yet. But before we just go all free reign with our Christmas Carol conversation, let's rate what we've done so far. What do, what do we think about these four movies that we watched? Are they good? So, Dan, Scrooge, 1951, good or not so good? I like this one a lot. I like the Scrooge a lot. I wish that it had a little bit more of the Bell subplot in it, or I guess it's Alice in that one. But um, I kind of already detailed that I kind of liked this more human, but kind of snarky take on Scrooge by Alistair Sim. Really good production in general. Great direction. I'm going to give this one a low-ish 7 out of 8. Exceptionally good. This is up there with my favorite ones that I have watched. Overall, I thought this one really worked for me. What about you, Brian? Cool. This one gets a 6 from me. A very good. Alistair Sim, not one of my favorite Scrooges. But I still liked a lot of what they did here, especially for as early a film as this is. I liked the effects. I liked a lot of the cinematography. And it's thorough. I mean, it pulls in a lot of stuff from the book. 
So if this is your quintessential adaptation, I don't begrudge you that. Rich Little's Christmas Carol, Dan. The one that you put forward. Yeah, I feel like you still are giving me too much credit on that. I'm going to have to go check the the transcript on that to see what I actually said. So I would say that I am glad that it exists, but that doesn't mean that I think that it's good or particularly enjoyed it. It's just kind of a weird thing. You know, some of the impressions are, are okay. Honestly, they're not that good. Like some of them are, are kind of funny. And I don't know. I was just overall not too enchanted with it as I was watching. It's like the premise itself was weird. The execution itself didn't quite do it for me. Um, I'm going to give this one a two out of eight, a not good. So it's not one that I'm excited to revisit. What about you, Brian? So this one for me, I actually liked it because it just broke up the monotony. It was something different and that gives it a boost. I'm going to give it a five, a good I uh, I did end up enjoying it. It's just something different. There's very condensed. It's all about just a guy playing a bunch of characters all at once. And so for that, that's uh, that's how I'm going to score it. Five out of eight. And the next one we considered was A Christmas Carol 1984. The one with George C. Scott. So what would you think of that one, Dan? I was cold on this one at the start. I thought... Scrooge was just too mean and gnarly as a character at first. And then I thought he didn't seem moved enough by the stuff in the Christmas past. He was just kind of passively observing it. And, you know, I had just seen the 1951 version the previous day. And so the production values of the TV budget felt a little bit more visually flat overall. That said, I got more into it as it went along. I liked the Christmas present, but I really liked the... Christmas future segment of this one. And I really liked the change Scrooge at the end. Uh, I thought it did some stuff that was really compelling with that. Uh, the, the reunion with the nephew and George C. Scott really won me over. He's up there for me in terms of the better Scrooges. I'm going to give this one a high six. That's a very good, if it had started a little stronger, it would have been in seven territory, but for me, it's a very good, all right, this one actually does get into seven territory, just barely for me. Uh, and maybe that's just because it's one that I'm pretty familiar with. A lot of these visuals are what come to mind for me when I'm picturing, like, for instance, the Ghost of Christmas Present. And especially mean start of the story Scrooge, that's George C. Scott for me. So that's where I'm at. Now, Christmas Carol 2009 with Jim Carrey. Past Judgment. Is it good? This one was a tale of two carols, if you will, for me. I liked how scary it was, how dark it was in moments. Some of the stuff it did and bringing in really evocative details from the book and showing it in a way you can only show it with animation. Just pretty exciting visual storytelling stuff sometimes. But then other parts of it were a little off for me. Just everything with like how into exploring the 3D it was, like making it feel like you're on a thrill ride showing off the technology, padding it out a little bit, the really ugly mocap characters, that all brought it down for me. So I definitely have a lot of ambivalence on it. I think for me that nets a kind of mid to low-ish four out of eight. That is a good-ish movie, but not quite good for me. So that's where I am on 09. What about you, Brian? This one... 
I liked more on my second watch. This was the first time I'd watched it since 2009, which it struck me was 12 years ago. Jeez. I don't know. Maybe it was watching it with somebody else. I was vibing with it a little more. I still was drawn out of it by Jim Carrey's face stuck on a candle flame and the unnecessary chase scene towards the end. But a lot of what it did gripped me more. Like, I liked the scariness and... I thought it was really cool the way that they interpreted the Ghost of Christmas Future as the shadow. And this one was like way more faithful than I remembered, just in the sense of how much it pulls from the book. Like there's a, a line mentioned in the book that at one point during Fezziwig's party, the fiddler falls into the punch bowl. And here in the movie, the fiddler falls into the punch bowl. So it's like they were clearly like studying the text definitely so i guess i didn't stick a number value on this one yet i'm gonna do a six a very good it was better than i remembered i'd say check it out if you are a christmas carol aficionado of any stripe well that was our quick blow by blow analysis of the four different specific versions that we took a look at this time around but now dan i wanted to zoom out a little i think we're both could be considered Christmas Carol aficionados now. We've consumed in detail eight adaptations, and I know that you and I have both watched and listened to and read even more than that. So we are well-rounded now in our consumption. And I wanted to just kind of spitball with you some of our nitty-gritty thoughts on the story. Sounds good. So listeners, we've prepared five talking points each that we want to visit here in our discussion. And uh, so, Dan, you want to kick us off? What is one talking point, an unanswered question, something that tickles your brain about Dickens' A Christmas Carol that we haven't discussed yet? Sure. So here's my, my first of my five assorted thoughts. In last year's episode, when we talked about A Christmas Carol, one thing that we said we agreed upon without really any hesitation is that the best segment of the story is ghost of Christmas past. One thing I, that occurred to me this year is that is definitely true of the movies we watched last year. And I think it's because musical elements play really well with all of the stuff that happens in Christmas past. And I do think that has probably the most interesting things overall, but I think they are a lot less striking or at least more striking than the rest of the story uh, in straightforward drama adaptations. In fact, one thing I kind of found myself thinking as I watched these four versions, um, particularly the three kind of more straightforward ones, is that I kind of like Christmas Future. I like how creepy it is. I like how dark it is and how much of a gut punch it is to Scrooge and also to the viewer. So I don't know. I think in dramas, the Christmas future segment plays better, whereas in the musicals, the Christmas past segment plays better. I think that's a great point, because I think I mentioned I didn't feel the same maudlin gut punch in the past as I did in last year's entries. But uh, certainly the, the looming specter of the Grim Reaper has more of a presence in these dramas. Yeah, I agree. Just the creepy ghost, the quiet of him. 
the darkness of the all the interactions. I was really struck by the Christmas future segments this year. So that's my first thought. Brian, what, what's your first thought? So I wanted to call out a few favorite lines from the original novella that uh, do come up pretty frequently in the movies. And one I've always enjoyed is when Bob comes in the day after Christmas and he's late to work. And Scrooge says, you know, what do you mean coming in this time of day? And Bob Cratchit says, forgive me, sir. I was making rather merry last night, which is a really good euphemism for having a hangover. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Uh, what about you, Dan? Any selections on that front? Well, I just want to say I've used that line a whole bunch of times in the past week. It's perfect for when you're feeling under the weather. Whether or not you were drinking, I said I've used. I felt like I was making merry last, making very merry last night, or whatever it is. But no, I agree with you. That's a good one. Uh, one that I like, and I don't know. I, I I googled this line, and everything that came up was this book. So it must be prominently associated with this book. Is that the phrase "Come in and know me better, man," which is what Ghost of Christmas Present says? That's just a great way to greet someone, like. It, if somebody comes up to my cube at work, I'm going to start saying, come in and know me better, man. It's just like a good greeting. I I like envisioning Dan structuring his life around Christmas Carol isms going forward. Yeah. <laughs> um, another one I like that I, I want to create something Christmas themed in my life such that I can use this as the title for it. In general, I like the, way that Scrooge tries to explain away Marley's ghost as being like he has heartburn or indigestion or something like that. And my favorite line there is he says, there's more of gravy than of grave about you. Or sorry, I think it's there's more gravy than of grave about you is the exact phrasing. But I really like that line. I don't even know why I like it. It's it's not like thematically relevant or anything like that, but it's just it's just a good line. And I think Either two or three of the ones we watched this year had that line. Yeah, I like that when being faced by, like, the visage of death, Scrooge still has time to make a forced, poor pun. Right. Did you have any other ones you wanted to toss out there? Well, anytime they describe Scrooge tends to be good, especially at the beginning when they uh, call him a grasping, clutching, covetous old sinner. Hard and sharp as a flint, single and self-contained, as solitary as an oyster. Uh, such a good insult. This is all good phraseology, uh, expertly narrated by Gonzo. Mm-hmm. And another one that I really that has grown on me. It's just very poetically written, and I like when they have the whole quote. Is when Scrooge is talking to Marley. Marley says. I wear the chain I forged in life. I made it link by link and yard by yard. I girded it on of my own free will and of my own free will, I wore it. I, I just like the, the rhythm and the poetry of that little line. Yeah, I enjoy that too. The, the Frasier version from last year made some good use of building on the kind of rhythmic and metric structure in the Marley part. Right. Uh, those were the, the highlights for me. Do you have any other ones you want to toss out there? 
uh, no, but just know that there's lots of good lines if you haven't read this thing originally. But even just having seen any of the movies, you probably heard a lot of these. So I haven't actually read much Dickens, but by reputation, he's very bloviating. And I don't know, it doesn't get to the point, which made me surprised how incisive some of his wording was. I think there's a lot of really well-written passages in this book. I mean, that shouldn't be a surprise given Dickens's overall, you know, acclaim and uh, esteem. But yeah, there, it's just it's it was, I guess, better written on a prose level than I was expecting. So, yeah. Yeah. And it's not long. It's like 100 pages even. And it's dense, but in the sense that like every sentence is good and delivers something. Right. So it's it's not treacly. So what's next, Dan? You got another thought bubble, another talking point? Yeah. So here's mine. And this is, it's kind of a question to you. I want to hear it from you, you as well. Do you have a least favorite beat or moment? So this is least favorite in A Christmas Carol. I mentioned it briefly, I think, but the kids under presence robe, the like starving children who I think are supposed to represent like the dangers of overlooking poverty and not paying attention to it and just letting it fester. But I don't know if that's exactly what it means. It's like on the one hand, it's blunt. And on the other hand, it's confusing. And I think you can just cut it out and have a perfectly serviceable story. Yeah, it's it's out of place for sure. Did you have a thought on that? What, uh, what would you single out as something that you could do without? Yeah, I have one that as soon as it occurred to me, it has bothered me in every single adaptation I've watched since. So here's the thing I don't like. In Christmas Present, when Scrooge is talking with the Ghost of Christmas Present when they're at the Cratchits, Scrooge asks, oh, is Tiny Tim going to live? And Ghost of Christmas Present says, he has a nice line about it. It's like, I see an empty corner and a crutch with no owner or something along those lines. And he says, yes, he's going to die. And then we get to Christmas future and we see that tiny Tim died and it's like robbed of its impact because we've just been told this is exactly what's going to happen. And now we see it. So I'm not sure that I could dare improve upon Dickens, but what I would do is I would just cut that beat from Christmas present. And part of the reason they have that beat is because then most of Christmas present gets to turn Scrooge's words on him. Like, you said may as well just die out and reduce the population. How do you feel about that with this little sickly kid? Huh? Huh? But I still think you could just have that line, just have it in Christmas future. And here's what I imagine. Don't mention it. Like we get kind of foreshadowing because we see that tiny Tim is sick and we get some lines from Cratchit about how, Oh, I think he's doing better and he's in good spirits and all that. So we know he's sick, but we're like not really scared about it. And then jump to Christmas future and all of a sudden everybody's crying at the Cratchits and you're like, what, why is everybody crying? What's going on? Because they're even kind of vague at first, like they talk around it. And I could just imagine the first time you're hearing it, if you hadn't already had it planted in your head that Tiny Tim's going to die. Why is everybody sad? What's going on? And then it dawns on you that Tiny Tim has died. And in fact, we even see in some adaptations, Tiny Tim's dead body under a cover upstairs i feel like that that future beat could have a lot more impact if they cut the christmas present beat so that's my my proposition 
That's actually really interesting. And uh, yeah, as Dan said, another deep cut we discovered reading the book or rereading it is that uh, in the future segment, Tiny Tim's dead body is still upstairs. They haven't buried it yet. So when uh, Bob goes to the grave, he's like, oh, it would do your heart good to see what a green place it is. It's like, this is the prospective resting place, the soon to be grave site, but not yet. Right. Pretty bleak. My follow-up that also bothers me well I, I don't know it's not in the same category it's just one that i found ultimately a little bit disappointing is that i always think of the bell story as extremely prominent but it is really not it gets one christmas past and one christmas no two christmas past beats there's and he's she's not even at Fezziwig as we mentioned this time around in the source text for what to me is maybe the most evocative individual scene from Christmas past, it's pretty downplayed in the source text and therefore the the adaptations that are pretty loyal. So I, I always found that a little disappointing. Yeah. And I don't think we said there's no bell in Rich Little. Oh yeah. She's just completely cut. That's right. Yeah. So yeah, those were my two. I don't know if you had any others you wanted to throw in or if you, if you wanted to move on to your, your next thought. No, no, that, uh, that captures it for me. So the next thing I wanted to talk about was the way this story kind of calls to mind the feelings and imagery I associate with dreams and dreaming. I mean, it all takes place with him being like repeatedly called out of his bed and things happening to him in his bed. And then like a, a chapter will come to a sudden close and he'll wake up back in the bed. And just the whole thing really feels like if you have ever had a bunch of dreams in a night and you keep lapsing in and out of them. And like sometimes, you know, like if it's got a really good story, sometimes you can go back to sleep and it'll just keep playing. I don't know. It just it. That's what it calls to mind for me. Do you have any additional things to add as far as that goes? No, I agree. I like it when the adaptation includes physical cues that combine this what he's seen of the spirit and a connection to his bedroom makes him feel it makes it feel more dreamlike like when he I'm trying to think specifically what it is but he like grabs something and then he ends up grabbing his bed sheet instead and it, it does like a quick transition yeah it's like often future will dissolve into the curtains or something or a bed post and right but there's other instances of it too and it, it just reminds me of like one time I had a dream as a kid that I was like writing an essay or taking a test or something and scribbling on the page. And then I woke up face down on the bed and I had like my pillow spread out in front of me and I was like writing on the pillowcase. Whoa. And so that's what I that's what I think of. Yeah, I've had ones where I'm like trying to run away from something and then I lose control of my leg and stumble and the, the thing catches up with me which forces me to wake up. And then when I wake up, I've been like lying on that same leg weird. And so it fell asleep. So like the sensation of my leg falling asleep was brought into the dream or perhaps the dream somehow triggered me to lie in a way that the leg fell asleep or something. I don't know, you know? Yeah. So one thing I mentioned last year's episode that I, I still think is true is you don't have to stretch too hard for this to be a, it was all just a dream. It in fact was more gravy than grave. There's a couple of things that push back against that. And one is the knocker, 
comes to life before he is in going to sleep mode. Everything else is in when he's like lying in his bedroom or lounging in his bedroom. So you could attribute it to a dream. Secondly, he sees things that he would not otherwise know that are factual about Cratchit or about what they're doing at nephew's Christmas party. I mean, maybe some of that is like him just imagining it. He has a seat of what he thinks might happen and he kind of realistically guesses what could happen. But I think it's pretty clear that we're supposed to think that that is actually what happened. So I I think we're not supposed to think it's all just a dream. And I I don't know if you've ever thought through that one before, Brian. No, I agree. Uh, You mentioned earlier the Marley knocker, and I was going to point out that he does see the things, you know, going on the next day in the Christmas present act. So So my next thought is one thing I like and I feel like doesn't get the proper consideration that it deserves it just it comes up and then it goes away and i wanted scrooge to ponder this more or for for this to be maybe circle back at the very end of the movie and we see that this actually ends up having an impact on the way scrooge thinks about things in the future but when he's in christmas future i think just about every single adaptation has scrooge pleading with christmas future saying tell me spirit is this what will happen or what may happen. Can the actions I make change what I'm seeing here? And I really like that idea. Like this thought that he, this ambiguity between preordained fate and the fact that we control our own actions and the things that we do impact our lives. I don't know. He just kind of says it. And then he's in back in the present. It's Christmas morning and he just is a good guy now. But he never really circles back on this thought that he is the one who controls his own destiny and the things that he does impact what happened to him and what happened to the world around him. They talk about how he keeps Christmas well now, but they don't ever explicitly kind of revisit that idea. And I I really like that idea. I wanted to see more of it. This isn't one of my talking points, but I wonder if the Christmas ghosts visit other people, like if they have different missions that they have to carry out or if it's always this same thing and there's you know they hit a different billionaire's house every year or maybe i don't know maybe there's a arbor day ghost or something like that who visits the other billionaire down the street you know it doesn't have to be a christmas ghost true i also just want to see the christmas ghosts hanging out together (laughs) yeah like i i think it would be, you know, hard to be sociable with the present ghost who's always like dying and being reborn as a, a slightly different version of himself. But I think past and future would get along. <laughs> Does Ghost of Christmas Future kick back and sip a brewski with his buddies? Or is he always as grim as we see him? Is that just like him being on? Like he, he uh, back to work. But then when then he like he lifts his head away and it turns out it's one of the three stooges or something, just like a normal or weird looking dude under the cloak who happens to have a really long, gaunt finger. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, that's what I hope for. All right, so my talking point number three is I wanted to share my thoughts on Christmas pudding. It's hard for me to even say because I have like an existential dread of British Christmas pudding. <laughs> British food is so bad in general. It just horrifies me. I I haven't been in the same room as it. I don't know if I could be, but from every depiction I've seen, it just it it seems awful. It it like 
has an eldritch quality to it, like a Lovecraftian, I can't even comprehend it. I assume you've seen this thing, but they build up to it in the Cratchit scene that, oh, Mother's been working all day on the pudding, and we're going to pull it out, and everybody's going to enjoy it. And... Oh, it it scares me. I am I I'm afraid of Christmas pudding. <laughs> it inspires fear. As weird as it sounds, but it, it, so they like tie it up in a cloth, and I think it might be like fruit cake, but it's like this savory mash of of like grain and. So to begin with, when British people say pudding, they don't mean what we think of as pudding you know we think of the the chocolate like creamy stuff in a cup but for them pudding is like the whole meal of dessert but it's also not that because it's not what we would recognize as dessert it just like comes after the main meal and like there's different kinds of it you could have blood pudding which is like just a sausage straight up uh so it's got like meat in it I don't think the Christmas pudding has that, but it, it, it's like this cannonball of dense stuff. And then they set it on fire, so it's like this blackened orb. I, I don't even know. It makes noise, too. That's something that gets pointed out. And it hisses, yes. They say, let's listen to it whistle in the kettle. Or the, the, you know, the copper. If you excuse me, I'll be vomiting into the, the pot over here. Oh my gosh, I don't want to be anywhere near this thing. That's good. Call me when it's over. That's my thoughts on Christmas pudding. So, punch comes up a lot in in A Christmas Carol. Is punch just punch, like with booze in it? I think of punch as a fruity, tasty drink. Is it? Yeah, I think it's like other things. In olden times, it was more common to have alcoholic drinks. For instance, I think of like cider. Back in the day, I think you would assume that your cider had an alcoholic element to it. Mm -hmm. Whereas nowadays, you wouldn't naturally assume like, oh, we're drinking apple cider. But it could have alcohol. I think that's punches in that same boat. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. Okay. I also thought while we're on the topic of food, it was kind of interesting how big a deal it would be to get a turkey for Christmas. But a goose is kind of run of the mill. To me, eating a goose seems weirder and more complex than eating a turkey. It's like, I don't know. I guess times have changed and the turkey was... People landed on turkeys instead of goose. So now the the goose is the novel thing. But I don't know. I just thought it was... Oh, speaking of that that turkey, I always thought we should get more setup on that turkey. Because it makes a big deal of it when he comes back. But sometimes it gets mentioned. Sometimes you get a very quick glimpse of it. I want more setup on the the huge turkey at the Poulter's. Yeah, it feels like something we should see when Scrooge is walking around the city at the very beginning of the story. Like, you should notice it. And maybe we do in some adaptations. I'm not calling it to mind, but maybe in, like, Scrooge 1970 or something we see it. can't remember. Uh Yeah, I wonder. We gotta go back to the tape. Yeah, yeah. And your thoughts about the goose is interesting, too, because I've never heard of anybody eating a goose, but that's... You know, maybe that's because it's the poor man's Christmas dinner. Right. Uh, But also, I mean, I think maybe that's a point where American and English are different because the turkey, of course, is a American bird. Maybe it was hard to get him over there. Mm, It's like exotic. 
Yeah, they didn't have a domestic turkey population at that point. Right. I like that. So it's like the imported meat. It's the fancy imported meat. No. Okay. The chorizo of England. <laughs> okay, so I, I guess that was my observation on uh, on Christmas pudding. So uh, talking point number four, Dan, what do you got? All right, so, so here's my next thought, Brian. One of the most meaningful holiday movies to me is the movie It's a Wonderful Life. Is that one you've seen? Yeah, I've seen that one, I think, twice. Okay. That's one of a small handful of movies that can make me cry every single time I see it. And as I was thinking about it this year, I haven't watched it this year. I'd like to watch it this year. But as I was thinking about it, it occurred to me that in some ways it is the reverse of Christmas Carol. So A Christmas Carol is a bad person coming to learn how their lack of kindness and generosity in this world makes them meaningless to the world around them and comes to correct that. But It's a Wonderful Life. Every, all that is flipped. It's about a good person who comes to learn how the fact that they've always been generous with their spirit and their time and their life energy, that kindness has made them extremely impactful in the world. And at the moment when they are doubting it, they come to see what would happen if it wasn't there. So in the same way, we have kind of a supernatural vision of that reality where they kind of come to learn that truth. It's it's like an exact mirror. I don't know how much they were thinking about A Christmas Carol when they wrote It's a Wonderful Life, but I see it as kind of a mirror of the other. Oh, I like that quite a bit. My two quick It's a Wonderful Life thoughts. Uh, one is I knew about it long, long before I ever watched it. Like, I, I watched it for the first time maybe like five years ago, and then last year I watched it again. But... I had seen like lots of parodies of it and stuff. Mm -hmm. And I assumed that the seeing what the world would be like without him would be more of the runtime, but it happens really fast. It's like 25 minutes at the end of a two hour movie. Right. I think that's part of the reason it works pretty well is you get this really, you actually quite understand this person's place in the world. Jimmy Stewart, whatever his character's name is. Right, it's like we get it before he gets it. Yeah, yeah. And they really build up to like each of the points that we get revealed in the sequence at the end. Although, my second observation about it is that one of the things they build up like extensively in the like first and second act is that there's this dude, this side character who's crushing on the wife the whole movie. He's he's after her. And when Jimmy's out of the picture, you think, oh, he's going to swoop in. And then it's like, what if I was never alive? Oh, your wife never married and she works at a library now. <laughs> it's like, wait, wait a minute. What, where's the payoff there? <laughs> that, that, that dude who was here the whole movie is just nowhere to be found. I'm going to need to think about that one as I watch it this year, assuming I watch it this year. Whenever I next watch it, that's going to be on my brain. So that's good. Uh, 4B is kind of semi-related. Just thinking about how Scrooge comes to realize he's a bad person and then makes the abrupt change. Whereas for Jimmy Stewart, he kind of just realizes that he's been okay the whole time. But when Scrooge makes this abrupt change, he's sometimes depicted as other people thinking that he's like lost his marbles a little bit. And I kind of get that. Like, if if I had a curmudgeonly uncle who all of a sudden was like, 
dancing around and buying turkeys for people and showing up when they said they wouldn't show up, I would be like, okay, we need to get you diagnosed for bipolar disorder or something like that, because what are you doing right now? And I don't know. I mean, I guess he sustains it. So people are like, oh, I guess he actually had a change of heart. But I would definitely be worried that he has gone kind of crazy. And on top of that, I kind of wonder if he would not fall back into some of his almost like muscle memory of being stingy and being resentful and being a penny pincher. Like, does he just completely overnight fully changed literally overnight? Or is there some hangover of that? I've kind of always wondered a little bit more about like how people think about post transformation Scrooge and, and whether what his behavior is like after this movie wraps this story wraps. Yeah. Does he need uh, subsequent visits? Does he need boosters? <laughs> All right, Brian, what's your, your point four? All right. So digging deep now, I was wondering if you had any thoughts on where the ghost of Christmas past would take you. So you're visited by the ghosts okay. in the night and, and then you're going to be shown some vignettes from your past. Mm -hmm. And I mean, just bear in mind that, you know, when we talked time loops, it was like you could experience things a different way or like in time travel, you, you know, maybe you could change something. But here you can't do that. These are but shadows of the things that have been, as the ghost says. You could just witness it as it happened. And it's going to tell you a little bit about why you are how you are. Question about this thought exercise. Do you see this as Christmas only? Or are you just saying our whole life? Oh, good question. Well, I have an answer that would work for Christmas, but uh, I'm not going to restrain you to that. If you need an Easter ghost or something, you <laughs> think about what comes to mind. Okay. Before I dive into my thoughts, I just want to say... So every now and then you'll have like a icebreaker or like a quiz online or something where the question is, if you could have one superpower, what would your superpower be? For me, if I had one superpower, it would be to be able to spirit and see things in the past. I mean, things for me, for sure. But also like we know that Scrooge doesn't just see things where he's there. So it's not just like tapping into his memory cores. He has like with the spirits, the ability to see things that he would have no reason to know about. That to me would be my superpower. Like I want to go back and see what Lee Harvey Oswald was doing in that one room on the day that he assassinated president Kennedy. And I want to go watch the eight hour version of greed by whatever that director's name is, the, the great lost film. And I just, I want to see was Jesus actually crucified and what did he do? And I want to go hear the Beatles perform and like actually be there while they're actually performing, not this grainy footage and stuff. And that would be my superpower. I would want to go and experience and see all these things about the past. And if I could bring a camera with me, all the better, because then I could share with the world what the, the true answers actually are. So this is something that I've thought a lot about. I don't fantasize about too many things in life, but one of the few things I do allow myself to slip into mental fantasies about is if I could go anywhere and see anything throughout past history, what would I go and see? And I have a lot of them that I would do. Wow. Yeah. One of my favorite podcasters is Dan Carlin, who covers history. He's got a series called Hardcore History, which is kind of what turned me on to podcasting. And in that, he talks in a couple episodes about 
Like, think about all the things that we barely know how they happened. It's like somebody wrote down a little bit about it, but you don't know what it looked like. You don't know what people were doing or the things that led to what ended up happening. And how valuable would it be if you could have a camera then and there? Yeah. Yeah. And it's there's just so many things that we don't know about that it would be so fascinating to see it actually in person. Or like things that I have memories of and, and would like to see it exactly as it was although i think in some cases it would be so different that it might be almost dissociating from my personal self so i guess what i will say for my what would i christmas past into i'll have one christmas and one non-christmas example so the christmas example i will use is there was one year that for presents at least it's just iconic for me and my family this one christmas Everything lined up and we were all the brothers because I'm the oldest of six and I have lots of younger brothers. This was just an amazing Christmas for us. We got a lot of awesome presents that were toys that hung around forever. But the signature thing we got was we got a new TV and we got a new PlayStation. So I had never had a game system before and getting a PlayStation was just like life changing. I could play all the good games now. I could sit in front of a high def TV widescreen and enjoy these games. That was phenomenal. That would be my Christmas past. I would want to go see how excited we were, what we were like at that age. It was a good cross section of different ages for me and my siblings. That's my, my Christmas past. That's an actual Christmas. I would go visit. I don't have too many weird, unusual Christmases where like some life changing thing happened to me. Most of those things did not happen on Christmas. Unlike Scrooge. Yeah, quick interjection that uh, we originally prepared lists of 10 talking points and thought this is going to take too long. So let's winnow it down a bit. Um, one of mine was going to be, why does everything in Scrooge's life happen on Christmas? It's like Marley died on Christmas Eve. And at least in some of the versions, we see Scrooge's tombstone says Christmas Day. So it's like just anything important and pertinent to him is, is Yuletide. Bell left him on Christmas. He had a falling out with his father on Christmas. Yeah, that's interesting, though, because it makes me wonder if some of his resistance to Christmas is trauma related. He's got like PTSD on bad experiences on Christmas. That's why he's so miserly. Maybe during March, he's just like he's still grumpy, but he's not quite as bad. I don't know. Do you want me to share my non-Christmas one or do you want to go ahead and share your other Christmas one? Oh, yeah. No, please, please continue. So... Here's my last one for for a non-Christmas experience that I would like to go see again and see if it matches my memory. Although maybe I don't actually, I don't know, but it still feels like a pivotal moment to me. And this is going to get a little deep in my personal life here, but I married my high school sweetheart who was in the same high school class as Brian. So I'm a, I'm a little bit older than them, but I ended up dating and then eventually down the line marrying someone from my high school. And the way that I met her was at marching band camp one year, like when we arrived, I decided there is a building here where we get our lunches and we do activities and it has a service elevator. It has stairs and it also has a service elevator. I'm just going to not take the stairs this year. Every time I need to go upstairs or downstairs, I'm going to take the elevator. That's going to be my thing this year. And then it just so happened that one time I did that, there were... Two young women, one of whom is my now wife, sitting in the elevator. They're like, oh, we didn't want to be at that social event that was happening during this band camp. 
And so we want to sit here in this elevator for a bit. And I ended up having like a few minute conversation with them while I took the elevator instead of taking the stairs. Cause that was like by one personal challenge from that year at Bandcamp. And so that is like a turning point in my life, like a weird coincidental thing that has shaped who I am today in my life today that led to us, you know, remembering each other and then thinking about each other and then ultimately getting together. And there's more to it, the story than that, you know, there always is, but I don't know. That was just like a one seed of a moment that I still see as having a massive shadow on my life today. And that would be something I would go and revisit. Nice. So Brian, you, you said you had one that fits double fits. It's on Christmas. Yeah, yeah. Well, so first off, I mean, the the first thing Scrooge gets taken to see is his school. And he can still recognize everybody, even though he's an old man. He can, like, point out everybody. Oh, that's so-and-so. And so that's got me thinking about that we... In in this scenario, I'm imagining the ghost scooping up both of us and just dumping us at, at our high school. And I am definitely picturing, like, marching band people. The, specifically, what I'm seeing and hearing is, like, uh, maybe it's, like, the first week of November, so not quite Christmas season. But the low brass section is playing the Home Depot jingle, which was just... Da, 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 that one? Yeah, that was the one. So that that's what's playing for me, as as well as um, they would also do What is Love? Dun, 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 dun. Yeah, I remember that one, too. Yep. Uh, Dan, of course, was in the trumpet section. Yeah. Uh, both marching band kids. You played bass clarinet, which technically is not a brass instrument. But I feel like in some ways, were you linked with the low brass section? So th this is just going off into the weeds. But so I started my sophomore year and there was a couple bass clarinet players and we would kind of hang with the low brass and kind of be around for their sectional stuff, even though we're you know they and especially other sections would be saying you're not a brass instrument you shouldn't be over there you shouldn't be doing stuff with them if anything you should be with the clarinets which i mean maybe there's some basis to that but marching band was extremely clannish if you haven't been in marching band it's just like people cared about their clicks and sub clicks even though everybody was a goofy band kid definitely so then my senior year we got like a bumper crop of bass clarinets and also there were several tenor saxophones and a berry saxophone and so there's like way more than normal and so then i propose that we have our own standalone section called the low reeds and uh, if a section did well in like really working hard during the day they would be awarded a spark plug at the end of each day of band camp. And if you got the spark plug, it meant you didn't have to show up for early drill the next day. So the first day of band camp, we, uh, we burst onto the scene and really made a name for ourselves working hard. And we won the first spark plug of the season. So then it's like, we've established ourselves as our own middle kingdom. Mm. We weren't our own thing before, but now we are the act of creation. That's excellent. Yes. Uh, but <laughs> To, to mellow things out and bring things a little bit more onto, um, onto the point. I'll say my best Christmas was probably uh, 2007 when we got Mario Galaxy. And then 
we went to visit my uncle and then we went to see national treasure two in theaters. So it's just like way more packed with activities than the standard Christmas where we just tend to sit around. But of course the ghost is not here to show us what we want to see, but what we need to see the things that are really going to inform us. And so I, I think your uh, elevator example was a good one. I think I might get taken back to last year when we were working on our previous iteration of a Christmas Carol episode. And I mentioned that I had, like, always kind of just felt a personal resonance with this story. But then last year, I was seeing somebody for about three months, and then she called it quits on December 18th. And uh, her name was Emily. And then we were watching those four Christmas Carol movies, and it's Belle, Belle, Belle. And we get to number four, and it's freaking Emily. It's like, what? I mean, sure, it's a common white girl name, but like, ugh. Wow. So that's my uh, Christmas past, one year ago podcast tie-in. That's impactful. That's, uh, yeah. <laughs> I didn't know that that was such a, a point in your life that that had so much resonance for you. So that's, that's yeah. good to know. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so that was four of five. What do you got for us uh, to kind of wrap things up, Dan, in this supplement, which has been kind of tacked into the episode and is now nearing yet another hour of... Of, of content, yeah. We're, we're giving the listeners the content they need. Not what you want, but what you need. <laughs> yeah, something like that. Okay, so here here's my talking point number five. A Christmas Carol 2. This is a half-baked idea. I haven't really fully thought it out yet. But... Here's where I'm going with it. So we're seven years in the future, okay? We're past Christmas. We made it past Christmas. Huzzah. We know that Scrooge keeps Christmas well. It's seven years later. It's also seven days later. It's New Year's Eve. Uh-oh. What's going to happen? He goes to sleep on New Year's Eve, and he gets visited by a ghost. Not the ghost of Christmas past or present or future, but the ghost of Christmas evermore. And yep. It's going to be a time loop. He's going to have to relive New Year's Eve seven times. I don't know exactly what happens in those seven days. This is a half-baked idea. It's not a full-baked idea. But he's going to have to discover something about himself. I think I decided he's going to fall in old person love in this, in A Christmas Carol too. So he, he's, going to, he's going to get visited by this ghost. And as he relives this day seven times... One of these times, he's going to realize that he loves maybe one of his maids or like some person he's been seeing on the streets or something. And the good news is, here, here's the best part. At the end of the day, the, last, the seventh day, he's done everything right. He's, he's discovered these truths. Maybe he has to learn to love himself. You know, Christmas Carol 1 was about he had to learn to love others. Christmas Carol 2 is he has to learn to love himself. But at the end of this day... We count down, and he's just fully expecting, ah, oh, the, the time loop's going to continue. But no, we get New Year's. To, he's like, what? I'm still here. It happened. What's going on? And he's with that whoever that woman was that, that he fell in love with. He loves himself now. And what does everybody do? They sing Auld Lang Syne. That's what A Christmas Carol needs. It needs more Auld Lang Syne. So Christmas Carol 2 is going to have that at the end of the movie. So that's, that's my sequel, the, the Ghost of Christmas Evermore. Okay, I can kind of see it. I want Mary Steenburgen to play this love interest character. <laughs> and and you might have something. Back to the Future 3? Yeah. Yeah. Or or I think her most famous role, Turkey Hollow. <laughs> That's right. Her uh, star-making turn. 
as far as Christmas Carol sequels, I want to know what Tim does with his life once he's not tiny anymore. Once he's just uh, adult Tim Cratchit, you know, he's had his survival hard fought for and, and does he make it worth it? I think that's a part of Christmas Carol, too, is we see where all these people are seven years later. Tiny Tim, he's a teenager now. He's, he's a young adult. What does he do? Maybe he drifts away from Scrooge. But I feel like that's a that's a part of it, too, is we see all these people seven years later. Yeah, I think it could definitely be interesting. I could also see him being like a little shit and just like, <laughs> you know, breaking windows and Scrooge has to straighten him out or something. OK, yeah, that's I like that. I'm going to add that in. Tiny Tim has fallen a little bit off the straight, narrow path. Now he's got to he's got to learn what it means to be a, a valuable member of society. So, like I said, a half-baked idea, but that that's that's what we got. All right. And on the subject of half-baked ideas, my last talking point, I wanted to spitball. What do we talk about next year, Dan? Our, our next slate of Christmas Carol films. What's the uh, unifying thread? And uh, I do have an idea, but... Uh, did you have anything you wanted to suggest? Yeah, I do. I have two possible propositions. Proposition one is, what if we talked about Christmas carols retold in the modern setting? So I'm thinking of Scrooged starring Bill Murray, which I know you have some complex thoughts about, but that is kind of the prototype. And I know there's a lot of modern retellings of A Christmas Carol. So that's option one. Option two that I saw is really old Christmas carols. There's like a 1900-something version, a 19-teens version, and then there's a couple from the 1930s. I don't know. I feel like we could have some some interesting, really early Christmas carol adaptations closer to the time that the novel was written. So those are my two ideas, but I want to hear yours, Brian. What's your idea? Okay. So one that has come to mind for me is examples where they used licensed characters. And so it's like you kind of got an existing franchise and then, but they're doing a Christmas Carol. Okay. Like Mickey. Yeah. So I'm thinking of Mickey's Christmas Carol. Definitely. Um, maybe the Flintstones Christmas Carol. And I would throw in, there's one where it's Barbie as the miser. Barbie's Christmas Carol. Barbie the Miser. I didn't know that existed. And uh, I've, I've always been curious about that one. Um, another possibility, though, we could do like uh, episodes of TV shows. You know, sitcoms would be the most common. Cartoons. Just things that uh, use the Christmas Carol framework in a half hour TV episode. Okay. These are promising ideas. I feel like we got a lot of ways we could go next year. We can just go year after year. Keep it going. As we've discussed, it's a thoroughly and well-adapted story, so we got our options. All right. Well, it was a pleasure considering a bunch more Christmas Carol adaptations. Perhaps more lie ahead in the Christmases yet to come. But what do you have for us next here on The Goods, Dan? So I have been chomping at the bit to get us to watch a movie in a subgenre or fad or something, I don't know exactly what you call it, that I got really obsessed with about a year ago and have been excited to bring something to the show. And that is the mumblecore movement. It kind of really became known in the late 2000s, uh, mid to late 2000s, and then kind of lost steam. And 
there have been a few directors who have continued to make movies in this style. One of those directors is named Joe Swanberg, and he has made a few that I've really liked uh, in the past 10 years or so. He's been prolific, so I haven't seen all of them. And one of the ones I haven't seen is a 2014 film called Happy Christmas. So I think this will simultaneously be a Christmas-themed movie. I don't know how much it's actually around Christmas. And will let us take a look at the sort of non-cinematic form of mumblecore movies and all that that entails. And I can share my thoughts on that a little bit. So... I'll be interested to see what you think of this one. It's Happy Christmas from 2014, directed by Joe Swanberg. He's also one of the co-stars, and the the main star is Anna Kendrick in this. So, All right, I'm looking forward to it. Something new to expand my Christmas canon. Something that isn't the same events that have been unfolding over and over since 1843. <laughs> so, yeah. Let's uh, sprinkle the torch out and uh, spice up our Christmas with a little more variety. And we hope that you'll join us all again here on The Goods, a film podcast. Happy holidays. (laughs) 